Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word today. We're going to reside in the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther chapter number 1. And for the next little while today, I want to speak to you about the noise of God's silence. Maybe God has been silent in your, in your life. That does not mean that He's not working. Maybe you've not been able to hear Him, but that does not mean that He is not working and that He does not have a plan. He is always at work. Sometimes we just don't see it or we may not hear His voice. So today we're going to begin a journey through what I believe is to be one of the most intriguing books in all of the Old Testament, this book of Esther. It's a journey that will take us all the way up to the Easter season. And if you've never read it before, let me encourage you to go home and maybe in your quiet time for the next little while, uh, the next few weeks, read through this and reread it and reread it again. In many ways, it parallels the Old Testament story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. If you remember that story, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery and it is a story about how God took this young man who was sold into slavery, who was put in prison, and God lifted him out of slavery, put him in second in command in all of Egypt, uh, and gave him the responsibility and the great privilege of preserving the lives of many of his brethren during a time of a great famine. The book of Esther has a similar motif. Esther is a story about a young Jewish orphan girl who is living outside the homeland of Jerusalem in what is now modern-day Iran in Persia. And God would, would work out the specifics in this young girl's life where she would move from being an orphan uh, in Persia uh, to being the queen of Persia. Can you imagine that kind of step that God moves in her life? Maybe there was years that she felt alone and years that she felt like she didn't matter, but God was always in his sovereignty working behind the scenes to bring Esther to where he wanted her to be. Now this book is not only intriguing, but it's very controversial for a number of reasons. Did you know along with the book of the Song of Solomon, the book of Esther, it's one of only two books in the Bible that never mentions the name of God anywhere. You don't find it mentioned on any page in the book of Esther, even though there's the name of a pagan king mentioned over 190 different times, you never find the name God mentioned at all. We just finished our study in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. In 13 chapters, you find 14 prayers. But when you come to the book of Esther, it's 10 chapters long, you don't find a single prayer. So there's no mention of God. There's not a single prayer that is prayed. You know, there are no miracles that are performed in the book of Esther. There's no one who receives sight to a blinded eye. There's no one raised from the dead. There's no Red Sea crossing. There's no meal barrel that never runs empty. There's no pillar of fire by night or a cloud by day. No miracles at all in the book of Esther. It's one of only a few books that are not quoted in the New Testament. Also, in the 1940s, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were unearthed in the caves of Qumran, you, those of you who are with us in the Holy Land, you remember going there, and you remember seeing those caves there just right by the Dead Sea. And, and one of the greatest archaeological discoveries in all of human history was when they dug out those old manuscripts, some of them 2,000 years old. Do you know the only book in the Old Testament that was not part of that was the book of Esther? So because of that, there are many who claim that this book has no business even being in the Bible, and that it was a mistake for the translators and those who put together the Scriptures to include the book of Ezra. We don't even know, listen, we don't even know for sure who wrote this book. 
But I personally believe that one of the reasons that many liberal scholars, so to speak, have a problem with the book of Esther, it is because it is the only book in the Bible that really gives us a full picture of anti-Semitism and hatred toward God's people. Though God's name is not found written here, though prayer is not mentioned here, though miracles are not recorded here, you can certainly find the hand of God all over every page and every event. You can find the sovereignty of God at work and the noise of God's silence. As on the outside, it doesn't look like He's working, but I want you to know in the background and behind the scenes, God is working out a situation where he's going to get Queen Esther, or this, this girl named Hadessa, that's her Hebrew name, going to move her as queen, and she becomes Queen Esther, the queen of all of Persia. So this book, it's a great reminder that even though God is silent, that does not mean that he's not working. Even though he's silent in your life sometimes, in my life, does not mean that he is not working. He's always, always working. And you're going to see that this morning, how God works through the king's request, the queen's rejection, and God's replacement to see to it that a new queen is put on the throne. In a few weeks, much of the world's attention is going to be focused on the desert of Las Vegas, Nevada for Super Bowl 58. The teams have not been determined yet, but it is a certainty that the Carolina Panthers will not be one of those teams, right? <laughs> we do know that for sure. Though we don't know for, who, for sure who the, other two, who the two teams will be, we know who it will not be. I looked up the average ticket cost for a Super Bowl ticket. This is the average. is $8,800. The cheapest hotel is $500 a night. The average cost for a 30-second commercial is $7 million for a 30-second commercial. Over 190 million Americans plan on watching the Super Bowl, and over 100 million Americans plan on throwing a party. In Esther chapter 1, you find a Persian king throwing a Super Bowl party. It's not a party to celebrate a football team or a football game. But it is a Super Bowl party that celebrates the incredible expanse and effectiveness and splendor of a kingdom unlike anything the world had ever seen, the vast Persian kingdom. Now, we know when you study the Bible that context helps with understanding what the Scriptures say. In fact, you really can't come to a proper understanding of the Bible until you put it in its historical context and its grammatical context and you understand uh, who was writing to who and what the situation was that prompted this writing. So let me give you by way of introduction the who, the when, and the where that'll help us orient ourselves as we move through this book. First of all, the who. You might want to jot that down. The who. This is the story of the Jewish people who are living in Persia who had an opportunity to come back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity was completed, but for whatever reason, they chose to remain in Persia and they did not return to Jerusalem. That's the who. These are exiles. Their families had been living here since uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem when the Babylonians were in power. And now the Babylonians passed off the scene, the Persians came to power, and many of the Jews under Cyrus was allowed to return to Jerusalem, but yet many of them 
chose to remain. And in, in the who, there are five personalities, five people that you need to familiarize yourself with, and it'll help you understand this as we move through it. Some of them are mentioned over and over again. For example, the first one is a guy by the name of Ahasuerus. If you care King James, you will see that title. Some translations use the word Xerxes. Xerxes is his proper name. Ahasuerus is his title. Kind of like Pharaoh in the Bible. Pharaoh was not a proper name or a given name or a birth name. Pharaoh was the title of the one who was leading Egypt. Ahasuerus is the one who is leading the vast Persian empire, but his proper name, his given name, was King Xerxes. That's the first guy you need to remember. He is the king of Persia. Secondly, write down the name Vashti, V-A-S-T-H-I, Vashti. That is the queen. This is his wife, and uh, she is the queen of all of Persia. Then the third guy that you'll want to be familiar with is a guy by the name of Haman. Haman is the consummate antagonist. Haman is an anti-Semite. He hates God's people. He hates the Jewish people. He is a, an, a high-ranking official in the king's court, but he's going to bring to bear all of his hatred against the Jewish people and pull every lever that he possibly can to destroy God's people. The fourth guy is Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish man whose family was taken captive when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem years earlier, and they chose to remain in Persia even though the edict was issued that they could turn, return to Jerusalem if they wanted to. And then finally, you have a young Jewish girl. Her name is Hadessa. That is her Hebrew name, but her Persian name is Esther, and it means star. Esther is going to be the one who will replace Vashti on the throne. So that's the who. Also, her uncle is Mordecai, the other guy that I just mentioned to you. That's the who. kind of helps you navigate through these opening chapters. Now let's look at the when. Notice verse 1. It came to pass in the days of, here's our guy, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. It came to pass in the days of Xerxes. Now remember this as we closed out the book of Nehemiah. When the Jews were allowed to leave captivity and come back home, they did so in three waves. Ezra led the first wave. Um, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel led the second wave. You remember this in our studies of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that was about 80 years between the two waves that come back to Jerusalem. And then about eight years or so later, um, uh, Nehemiah leads the third and final wave. The events of the book of Ezra take place between that first and second wave of the Jews' return back into Jerusalem. The date is somewhere around 486 B.C. during the reign of this king Xerxes. That's the when. All right? So we're, we're good on the who and the when, right? Say amen. Let's look at the where. Where does all of this take place? He tells us. It came to pass, verse 1, in the days of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. Notice. This is the Ahasuerus which reigned from India even to Ethiopia over 107 and 20 provinces. 
that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Sushan, the palace, or some translations call it Susa. It's the same place, but it is located in modern-day Iran. Now, we know the borders of Iran today and what that country looks like and the, and the boundaries of that country. But uh, during the vast Persian Empire, the boundaries were much different than what they are now. In fact, in fact, did you know up until 1935, Iran was still called primarily, it was called Persia. And then in 1935, uh, because they, they traced their name all the way back to their religion, Zoroastrianism, they eventually moved to changing it formally to Iran. But that took place in 1935, and you have the boundaries that you see today. But I want to put a map on the screen, and I want to show you that during the days of Queen Esther, what the vast Persian empire looked like. Everything that is in the green is the Persian Empire. You see that? Everything that is in the, the green color, it starts all the way down here around India. In fact, that's what the text says, right? It tells us the where from India. Look at this. India here all the way down to Ethiopia, which is right here, or Kush in the Scriptures. It was the largest empire at the time that the world had ever seen. It included... Areas like Afghanistan, or parts of it, Pakistan, uh, Jordan, uh, Syria, Israel, as you come on down into here, and then even the good part of Egypt. And it goes all the way up to where Turkey is today. So it was the largest empire that the world had ever seen. So when you and I study our American history, we know that we live in a very young country, right? A little over 200 years old. And we know that George Washington was our first president. He was inaugurated in 1789. After George Washington, there was John Adams. After John Adams, there was Thomas Jefferson. So we know that, tracing, tracing American history back just 250 or so years. For the Persian people, their empire and their rulers would trace back some 3,000 years years. Think about that. Think about the number of kings that would come and, and leave. Think about the number of rulers that would come on the scene and then just as quickly pass off the scene. It was an old civilization, a storied civilization. And when you look at the book of Esther, you find about 450 some odd years before the birth of Jesus Christ, King Ahasuerus is ruling this incredible, incredible, expansive empire. So in the third year, according to the Scriptures, in the third year of his reign as king, he throws this, for lack of a better word, this Super Bowl party. Look at it in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast to all of his princes and his servants, the power of Persia, and media, the nobles, the princes, the provinces being before him. And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty, many days, look at this, even 180 days. Now, this is not just a one-day tailgate party. It was not just a two- or three-day celebration. But what does the Bible say? A 180-day-long party. That is a six-month party. And just reading through this and reading different commentaries on it, I've kind of come down on 
what I believe was taking place here. And I haven't read this anywhere else, so take it for what it's worth for me this morning, okay? I believe what was happening during the six months is that um, Ahasuerus was taking all of the who's who in his 127 provinces of this kingdom, and he was taking them on a six-month tour around all of his kingdom. Let's put that map back up there for just a moment. And if he's taking them on this tour around all of his kingdom, I would say that he probably came right here to Persepolis. And as he, as he told all the dignitaries who were traveling with him, he said, I want you to look right here at this place. And he described how his father Darius built a summer retreat right there in Persepolis to show them the, the, the beauty of that kingdom. I would say that he probably took them to Egypt all the way. Now, remember, you see this right here is Susa. That's the capital. That's where the story takes place, all right? So he, first of all, takes them perhaps to Persepolis. Then he takes them all the way down to Egypt, and he shows them how his grandfather, Cambus, conquered Egypt. And right here gave them access to all of the world's best cotton, so that the My Pillow guy still sells those Gaza dream, Giza dream sheets today. That's where it comes from, right there in Egypt. Did you know that? So he's taking them on this six-month tour. And he says, not only do you, want, do you want to see Persepolis, and not only do you want to see Egypt, he says, but right here in Babylonia, he says, you have to remember that my grandpa Darius diverted the riverbed that would lead under the walls of the Babylonian Empire. And, and, and the Medes and the Persians, our grandfathers would walk right under that wall and conquer Babylon. And then he brings them all the way up here to, to what is now modern-day Turkey, right on the coast of Greece. You see, this is Greece right here. And he brings them right to the doorstep of Greece, and he tells them how one battle after the other and after another that all of the Persian Empire began and continued to expand. And here's what he's doing. He's actually building a coalition with all of these provinces, and he's trying to garner enough military support that he can eventually conquer Greece. I've already tried before and failed. And you've, if you know anything about your world history, you know that he tries again. And he has some absolute disastrous results. And eventually there's going to be a, a young baby born named Alexander the Great who's going to conquer the entire Persian Empire as Alexander the Great becomes the leader of Greece. And, and he spreads what we call Hellenism, Greek influence throughout the entire known world at that particular time. So just put yourself in the sandals of Ahasuerus and all of his leaders, 127 different provinces, as they march throughout the known world. And they're saying, Look what happened here, and look what happened here, and look what happened here, and look what happened here. And then he makes his journey all the way back to the capital city of Susa. He sits down on his throne. He wipes his hands, and he says, That gentleman is how we have been able to build the world's first superpower. And indeed, the Persian Empire was the world's first and only superpower. That leads us up to verse number 5. It was a 180-day, a six-month tour of the kingdom, verse 5. For the next seven days, he's going to throw a party that is not just for the leaders of his kingdom, but it's for everybody. Look at this, verse 5. 
And when these days were expired, the king made a feast to all the people that were present in Shushan, or Susa, the palace, both into great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So this, this feast, this celebration, this Super Bowl party was not just for the who's who or just for the leap. Elite. It was for the rich as well as the poor. It was for the nobles as well as the common man. It was for the influential as well as those who were just regular, ordinary people. But they were all invited, get this now, to come to the capital city, to the citadel of Susa. And there in the king's court, they were going to celebrate this vast Persian empire and all that they had been able to accomplish. When we took our mission trip to Mardi Gras a few years ago, uh, I spent much of the time being in culture shock. Now, I've, I've been a lot of different places around the world, but I don't think I've ever been anywhere quite like Mardi Gras. Uh, to be in Mardi Gras, parades all over, all over the place, not just one parade, but parades everywhere, uh, practically every day, uh, leading all the way up to, uh, uh, or from Fat Tuesday up to Ash Wednesday, I believe it is. But there are parties everywhere. And when I say parties, whew, speakers on the lawns of people's homes blaring music, there are guys riding four-wheelers with no mufflers up and down the, the road as loud and fast as they could go. Guys on horseback, people on floats. There was music playing, beads thrown, you name it. And uh, many of the folk that we met were believers and treated us very well. And then there were some that we met. You try to talk to them about the Lord. They had a, a beer in one hand and they had a, a joint in the other hand, marijuana in the other hand. And you're trying to talk to them about the Lord. In this scene... It is Mardi Gras, Persian style. Everybody is invited to come to the citadel and to make the most of this party in the king's palace. Verse 6 describes what the palace was like in the courtyard. Notice, he says, uh, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of linen, purple to silver rings and pillars of marble, the beds of gold and silver upon the pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. Here's how the ESV renders that. Marble pillars, couches of gold, silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mu marble mother of pearl and precious stones. Now, I know what marble is. And I know what silver and gold are. I know what mother of pearl is, but I had no idea what in the world porphyry is. Not familiar with that. So when I started reading about that, I found that Napoleon Bonaparte loved porphyry. In fact, I'm gonna, and, and he made a suggestion, or made a, made a, a um, demand, actually, that upon his death that his sarcophagus be made of porphyry. And I got a picture of it for you up on the screen. That's, uh, that's in Paris, France. I've been to Paris, but I never got to see the sarcophagus of Napoleon Bonaparte. But that's what it's made of. It is a reddish-looking, almost a granite-like material. And the Bible says in King Xerxes' palace that the floor was a mosaic of mother-of-pearl and porphyry inlaid with other precious stones. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be part of a party, a Super Bowl party, a Mardi Gras, that would take place in the capital city of Susa under the most powerful king in all of the world and the greatest empire that the world had ever seen? Look in verse number 7. He not only describes what it was like inside the, 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 uh, the uh, palace, but he says in verse 7, They gave them drink and vessels of gold, 
The vessels being diverse one from another, the royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king, and the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king that had appointed all the officers of his house, that they should do according to every man's pleasure. It was a week-long party. The beer taps remained open. It was an open tab for the king, and everybody there could just come, and they could get as as sauced up as they wanted to get. And the king would take care of the bill. All sense of decency and order was thrown out the window. Verse number 9 says that Queen Vashti had her own auxiliary meeting with the ladies, and she was on another side of the palace perhaps, and she had a party there as the men had this party here in the courtyard of the palace. And everything seems to be going fine until the king makes a strange request. So look at this request of the king. If you're listening, say amen. Amen. Verse 10. On the seventh day, this was the last day of the party, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. That's the King James way of saying he was as drunk as he could be. He commanded, and he names these guys, Mahum and Bitha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, Carasus. The seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, look at this request, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the royal crown and to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Now maybe that sounds harmless, right? He wanted everybody to see not just the beauty of his kingdom, but he also wanted everybody to see the beauty of his wife, Vashti. What exactly is he asking of Vashti to leave her party and to come and be part of his party and to wear the royal crown? I mean, again, you read it, it sounds harmless enough, doesn't it? The king had a large harem, and he could have called any lady from his harem, but he doesn't. He chooses the queen, The queen with whom he will have an heir to the throne, and he asks her through a messenger to come to this party to put on the royal crown so that everybody there could see what a beautiful queen he has seated next to him on the throne. Here's the problem. Most Bible scholars tell us and historians tell us that when Queen Vashti, what she was actually asked to do, the crown, in other words, turban or headdress, that that was all that she was to wear when she came before this drunken party. Now, can you imagine a scene such as that? The king makes this crazy request, and he says, you go tell my wife Vashti, the queen, just to put on her royal headdress, and that's it, and to come out and parade herself in front of all of my friends, in front of all of these dignitaries of all the provinces of this great kingdom, because I want everybody to see her beauty. What an insult. What a cheapening of his wife. As he was showing off the wealth of his kingdom, he viewed his wife like property. Here was a man who thought, in a heart of disrespect and insult, I'm the big man on campus, and when I tell people what to do, they do it. 
And when I tell people what they shouldn't do, they don't do it. And I lead people at work all day long. And then he comes home from work and he thinks he can tell his wife what he's been telling everybody else to do all throughout the day. And he can't turn it off. And it leads to conflict in the family for a lot of people. Even maybe some of you have experienced that yourself. And he thinks because everybody else is supposed to listen to him, when he comes in the door that she's supposed to bow down and that she's supposed to listen to him as well. He's been ordering people around all day long. And when he comes through the door, he looks at the queen of his house like he would any other servant in his kingdom. Too bad Ahasuerus never knew that a husband is to love his wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It is a shame that Ahasuerus never knew that God put a, a deep sleep on Adam and removed one of his ribs and from that made a helper from Adam and he took the place closest to Adam's heart where he would nourish her and cherish her and care for her and look after her and protect her and love her. Too bad Ahasuerus never knew that. Too bad that he never knew 1 Peter 3. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wife. Treat them with respect as the weaker vessel and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Listen to this, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Did you hear that? So to be disrespectful to your spouse, to be callous, to be harsh, to be bullied to your spouse, your prayers, God says, will be hindered. Too bad Ahasuerus never knew that. Listen, Proverbs 18 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 12, A virtuous woman is the crown to her husband, but she that shames him is like rottenness to his bones. So Ahasuerus comes in. And he gives an order for Vashti to come, parade herself in front of all of his drunken buddies. Verse number, look in verse number 12. You see the request of the king, but now look at the rejection by the queen. Verse 12. i got to hurry up. You guys are not listening fast enough. Verse 12. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. And therefore the king was very wroth, and his anger burned in him from Ethiopia all the way to India, everybody listened to what Xerxes said. But now he can't get his wife to leave her party and come and be part of his party. The Bible says that Vashti refused and she said, No, I am not coming to that party. I am not going to parade myself in front of those drunken men as some kind of assorted peep show. You can just send word back to Ahasuerus, no deal. I'm not coming. And the Bible says when Ahasuerus gets word of this, that he is enraged. Eugene Peterson in the message says this, the king lost his temper, seething with anger over his insolence or her insolence. So what he does when she refuses his invitation. Verse 15 says he gathers all of his, his counselors together and he says, guys, what are we going to do about this? This means trouble. So you see the request of the king, come and join this party, Vashti. You see the rejection of the queen says, no, I'm not going to do it. Look at the reaction of the men, verse 16. And Mimukan answered before the king and the princess, Vashti the queen has done has not done wrong just to the king only, 
but to all of the princes, to all of the people, to all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. Now, Mamukin is one of the king's trusted advisors, and he gives a threefold summary of Vashti's insubordination. In verse 16, as I just read to you, he said, she's done wrong, she's offended to everybody in the kingdom. Secondly, he says, in verse 19, he says, king, you ought to divorce her. Then again, in verse number 19, he says, king, you ought to make a new woman the queen. Now, apparently, Vashti, because of this, she suffered the wrath of her drunken husband. We don't know what happened to her. She, we know that she was banished from the king's presence and never came back in front of the king the entirety of her life, but we don't know what happened to her. She drops off the pages of Scripture, and you never see her again. And the men present that day, they wanted it like that. Because they were saying, if word gets out that she rejected the king's invitation, then other women will be empowered not to listen to their husbands. Look in verse 18. The Jewish people kind of laugh at this, by the way. Verse 18. Likewise, they say, shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day to the king's princess, we have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. And they're talking to each other and say, man, if my wife hears about this, I'm going to have heck to pay when I get home. And they're like, well, me too. If my wife hears about this, she'll never listen to me again. So let's make a law, king, that every woman has to honor her husband. And every husband has to be the leader in his family. Look in verse 20. When the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all the empire, for it is great. All the wives, look at this, shall give to their husbands honor, both great and small. May I say this? Listen. You cannot legislate a woman having respect for her husband. Make all the laws you want, but that doesn't happen. A woman honors her husband and respects her husband and loves her husband when she sees that he allows God to work in his life and he becomes a spiritual leader in his family and she willingly follows that spiritual leadership not because a law had been written by a pagan king somewhere but because God has so, so wired her to follow the spiritual leadership of her husband. You can't legislate that out. Look in verse 21. And the saying pleased the king and the princess and the king did according to the word of Memukin. Verse 22. He sent letters to all the king's provinces, to every province according to the writing thereof, to every people after their language, that every man, look at this, should bear rule in his own house and that it should be published according to the language of every people. So they said, we're going to make a law that women have to, have to submit and men have to lead. You can't make a law that'll make either of those happen. But what you can do is write it upon a person's heart with the glorious gospel of Christ and a woman who, who wants to serve God willingly submits to the spiritual leadership of her husband. And a man who wants to serve God willingly becomes that spiritual leader that God wants him to be. Not a Persian law will make that happen. So very quickly you see the request of the king, the rejection of the queen, you see the reaction by the men, and finally... Look at the replacement by God. Out of the scheming of wicked men, out of the 
depths of their treacherous, drunken hearts, these men, they don't realize it, but what they have done by getting Vashti off the throne is they have opened the door for God who was working behind the scenes to bring the right woman on the throne as queen at just the right time because there is going to be an attempt at genocide to wipe out all the Jewish people in Persia and the only person who would have the king's ear that could stop that would be the woman who was seated next to him and God is going to get all, use all of these men as he works behind the scene and these men who are carnal, these men who are bullies, these men who are insecure in and of themselves and God is working all around that to get the right woman in the right place at just the right time. I want to draw your attention back to verse number 19 and we're going to land this, okay? Look in verse 19 and I want you to see this verse and how it launches us through the remainder of the book, verse 19. It pleased the king, if it pleased the king, let there go a royal commandment from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered. You remember, you remember when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den? That happened in the Medes and the Persians' time? And they wrote a law, if you don't pray, or that you shouldn't pray, and if you do, you get thrown in the lion's den. Daniel prayed anyway, and the king didn't want to throw him in the lion's den, but he says the law, the Medes, and the Persians cannot be altered. And that's why Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. Those events take place during the reign of the same king, or the same empire, I should say, the Persian empire. So if it please the king, let there be a royal commandment. Let it be written among all the Jews and the Persians and the Medes, uh, the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered. Look at this now, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus. And I want you to underline these, this final part of verse 19. And let the king give her royal estate to another that is better than she. Does it seem to you that when you read this narrative that Vashti is the only person in the story who didn't do anything wrong? necessarily. She was the only one in the story that seemed to do what was right. But yet here she is, that she, and she is banished from the king's presence, drops off the pages of Scripture, and from her perspective, she may be looking at the situation thinking, what good does it do to try to do right and live right and be right if it's not going to have any positive results in my life? Now, maybe you have felt that way as well. You do the right thing, but it seems to bring the wrong results. Maybe we've all been through that. Listen to the words of Chuck Swindoll. He addresses that. He says this, quote, For God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Jesus Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. As you serve people in ministry, you will give, forgive, forget, release your own will, obey God to the maximum, and wash dirty feet with an attitude of gentleness and humility. And after all of those beautiful things, you will get ripped off occasionally. 
Knowing all of this ahead of time will help you improve your serve. Believe me. Get this clearly fixed in your mind, he writes. When you do what is right and suffer for it with grace and patience, God applauds. Illustration, Jesus Christ suffering in death on the cross. He, the perfect God-man, was mistreated, hated, maligned, beaten, finally nailed cruelly to a cross. He suffered awful consequences even though he spent his life giving and serving. One thing is certain. If people treated a perfect individual that way, then imperfect people cannot expect to escape mistreatment. If mistreatment has not happened to you yet, it will. End of quote. Comes all of our ways. And maybe you think I'm trying to do the very best that I can. Why do I hit so many roadblocks? Why do I get knocked down? Let me encourage you to see the big picture of what God is wanting to do all around you. And let me get, encourage you to listen to the noise of his silence because you think He's not doing anything, or he's not aware, or he's not helping me. God is working in a way that you would never think possible. Just, just trust him and try to see the big picture of what God is doing in your life. I said earlier in this message how God used this man Joseph to save the Jewish people or save his brothers from famine. You remember the story of Joseph? He was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He had his character smeared by Potiphar's wife in Egypt. He was put in prison. When he finally comes out of prison and after years of suffering, he meets his brothers. And you know what he said? You dirty dogs, I've been waiting to get even with you. That's not what he said. You know what he said? He looks his brother square in the face and he says, What you intended for evil, God intended it for good. Isn't that great how he saw the big picture? And he saw that though I've been mistreated or though I've been hurt or though I've been, been going through a time of struggle, God is still working behind the scenes even though I don't see it, even though I can't hear it. And God in this scene is working behind the scenes. Though Vashti looks like she's been mistreated, God uses it as an opportunity to get the right woman in the right place at the right time. I'm going to close in three minutes, but let me close by giving you a prelude of where this story is heading. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Haman, the antagonist, concocts a plan where the Jewish people living in Persia are going to be killed. It is because he was anti-Semitic and he hated the Jewish people. Not for any reason other than, we'll see it when we get to chapter 3, that Mordecai, a Jewish man, wouldn't bow before the king because for a Jewish person there's only one king and that is God. So he hates the Jewish people, he becomes an anti-Semitic person, and he was a prelude to Adolf Hitler who so despised the Jewish people that he sent some six million of them through the incinerators. And today we have some of those who are the leaders in some of our most prominent higher institutions of learning, who try to rewrite history and say that the Holocaust never happened. 
And when you watch the national news and you see the protesters because of what's unfolding in Israel right now, and you hear those words, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, what they're really chanting is from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean that there should not be one footprint of one Jewish person found anywhere here. Get rid of them all. That is anti-Semitism to the core. Why in the world do so many folk fail to understand what is happening in current events with that today? I'll tell you, the reason for that is because people are getting the worldview from the news media and not from the Word of God. But when you read it from the Word of God, we know that God has a plan for His people. They're still the apple of His eye. They are His covenant people. And it is God's plan for them to remain in the promised land. It's not Hezbollah's plan. It's not Iran's plan. It's not Hamas's plan. But it is God's plan. And they will be there forever. And God has said that they will occupy that land. So the ownership of the promised land is more than political, more than cultural, more than racial. It's a biblical issue. And now listen carefully, and I'm going to close. To say that we despise the Jewish people would be to say we despise Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that we despise Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and that we despise uh, James and Peter and John and Paul and Jesus himself. They were all Jewish people who gave us the word of God and Christ even came himself for you and I. Haman orchestrates this plan to say, get rid of the Jews. And there's only one way that that's going to be stopped. An unlikely heroine, Hadessa, an orphan girl, is promoted to be the queen of the Persian Empire. And she thwarts Haman's plan as the replacement that God chooses for the queen she thwarts Haman's plan to kill the Jewish people. So really, what you see in this story is a picture of another replacement that took place years and years later. Because our sins have separated us from, from God, we all should have been nailed to a cross and died for our own sinfulness. But aren't you thankful that God gave a replacement for us and it was His Son, Jesus, who allowed Himself to be nailed to the cross so that you and I could go free. Who allowed himself, the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means while we were still in the sin and state, Jesus died for me and he died for you. He was God's replacement who bore in his body the punishment of the sin debt of this world. And though it looked like God was not working when Jesus went to the cross, and Jesus looked to the Father and said, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on Jesus. The noise of God's silence seemed deafening. But it does not mean that God was not at work. And he was working to finish and complete the plan of salvation that would bring you and I into his forever family.